Hi, welcome to podcast number 29 from the podcast, Help with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Dr. Supermanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center. And I'm Warren Buthnick, your host. Welcome, Dr. Sue. Hello, good afternoon, and thank you for asking me to come again. Sure, gave you a week off last week. Yes. <laughs> so, hope you rested up. Yep. So, the topic today, the main topic, we'll see if we have time for something, anything else, is it happens to be the stomach again. Right. Making all these discoveries of the stomach. Just like last time, it's bacterial, but this is tyrosine, an amino acid, tyrosine decarboxylase. And that converts the levodopa to dopamine. Could you uh, go over that whole process with us? Right, right. So um, as many Parkinson patients know, and uh, listeners here also know, one of the mainstays in the treatment of Parkinson's disease is to use the medicine levodopa, uh, popularly known as Cinemat, or sometimes called Carbidopa levodopa. So this pill has two things in it. Uh, One is the levodopa, which is the precursor for the hormone dopamine. So the levodopa gets converted in the brain into dopamine, and uh, then it does its job of uh, making your movement smoother, uh, tremors better, and walking in balance better. But in order for the levodopa to enter the body and get to the brain, there are a few important steps that it has to do. First is that levodopa needs to be absorbed from the part of your gut, which is called the jejunum. And and the way it does it is through small little transporters. And these are little channels in your gut that allow amino acid to be transported. And amino acids are the basic components of proteins. So when you eat a piece of cheese or an egg or uh, a piece of chicken, it has uh, amino acids in there. And those amino acids are absorbed through those little pores. Now, one of the important things that happens with levodopa is that uh, in the body, there is an enzyme, uh, which is called dopa decarboxylase, which can immediately uh, convert levodopa into dopamine. And we don't want that to happen in the gut. We want that to happen in the brain. And the reason why we don't want to happen, happen in the gut is that if it gets converted to dopamine, then it gets used up very quickly. Now, in this study uh, that uh, got published recently in a famous journal called Nature Communication, uh, investigators from Netherlands uh, decided to test this idea that perhaps uh, the reason why some people need to take very large doses of levodopa is because of the problems with the gut bacteria. So to understand this, we also have to remember that in our gut, in our jejunum, and in our colon, and in our stomach, we usually have bacteria. We have lots of different kinds of bacteria, but one particular uh, species of bacteria is called enterococcus. Enterococcus is a very common uh, uh, species of bacteria that almost all of us have in our gut. And it turns out that the enterococcus produces an enzyme which is called tyrosine decarboxylase. So it's slightly different from dopa decarboxylase, which I mentioned before, but this is called tyrosine decarboxylase. So this actually can act on levodopa and can decarboxylase it and, and create problems. 
So normally this enzyme that the bacteria produce actually works on a protein which is called tyrosine. And tyrosine is the precursor for levodopa. So just make sure everybody is not confused. Uh, let's go over this one more time. Uh, normally in the food, in protein, we have amino acids. And one of the amino acids is tyrosine. And tyrosine is the normal way in which healthy, normal people who don't have Parkinson's actually make dopamine. Their tyrosine gets into the body, it gets converted into levodopa, and then levodopa becomes dopamine. All of that process, conversion of tyrosine into levodopa and dopamine, happens in the brain. It does not happen in the gut. However, because Parkinson patients are deficient in dopamine, we try to give them the dopamine by giving them levodopa. Now, some of the listeners might say, why don't we just give the dopamine? Unfortunately, you can't give dopamine because dopamine is not stable and it becomes oxidized very, very quickly. So if you just swallow some dopamine in your, as a pill, it only lasts for a few seconds, literally, and it becomes oxidized and it doesn't, it's destroyed. It doesn't get to the brain at all. Therefore, we have to use this trick of using levodopa. Now, levodopa works well in most people, and most people can take one pill three times a day or four times a day every four hours and get very good motor control. However, we have noted, and many, have, many people have noted, that some people need more and more carbidopa levodopa, and some people need it sooner than later. So what these investigators who were testing all these things found is that the bacteria in the gut may be the culprit. They discovered that certain bacteria, and specifically the one that they were worried about is a bacteria called Enterococcus. There's another one called Lactobacillus also, but both these uh, bacteria appear to have high concentration of what we call bacterial tyrosine decarboxylase. And this enzyme actually uh, converts levodopa into dopamine or does the job that carbidopa levodopa does not need to have done. The interesting thing is that carbidopa, which is the other part of carbidopa levodopa, supposed to block the enzyme DDC, dopa decarboxylase, in the gut. And it does. In human, DDC is blocked very, very effectively, highly effective in blocking it. But it doesn't work on bacteria. So the bacterial tyrosine decarboxylase is resistant to the carbidopa. So in short, having these type of bacteria in your gut may put you at risk for needing higher and higher doses of levodopa because the medicine doesn't simply get into the body, it gets destroyed in the gut. So what did these people do? They tested this in a rat model. They first um, gave the rat uh, regular carbidopa levodopa, and they also gave the bacteria which interferes with the uh, absorption of this medicine. And they found, lo and behold, uh, yes, it's a problem. It doesn't work well, and it blocks it. Then they said, okay, let's try something different. Let's try putting in bacteria that don't have this particular enzyme. So they then used a different enzyme uh, containing bacteria, and they put those uh, bacteria into the gut. And they showed that 
whenever they put this different kind of bacteria, the bacteria that does not have the uh, tyrosine decarboxylase, they actually did much better, and the animals were able to get uh, substantial benefit with smaller doses of uh, levodopa carbidopa. So again, the summary of this study, very interesting study, I think, is that uh, on people who might need more and more doses of levodopa, they may have a problem with having these bacteria, additional bacteria in the, in the stomach. So what does the future hold? Where are we going with this? Um, in this study, they collected fecal samples. They collected samples from patients to actually analyze what kind of gut bacteria they have. And when they looked at it, they found out that people who had these kinds of bacteria that interfered with um, levodopa absorption, um, they found out that those people actually uh, did poorly and that when they tested it in the animal model, replacing it with other kinds of bacteria may actually be beneficial. So there are two ways in which this might progress. And you might see, patients might see, and listeners may see uh, what will happen in the clinic when you see your doctor. We may ask you to give fecal samples for analyzing whether your uh, feces contains certain particular kind of bacteria that may be interfering with levodopa absorption. That may be a direction in which we may go. And the second direction is that in addition to taking cinnamon, carbidopa, levodopa, we may also give you additional medication or probiotic bacteria, one of the two things. Um, that will then stop the tyrosine decarboxylase that the bacteria produce from interfering with your levodopa absorption. Uh, these are not yet happening, but I think it's very exciting, very interesting, and very promising area of research. I personally think um, if that's found to be true, that we can actually just block the enzyme that the bacteria produces, we can probably enhance the quality of life of a lot of people in a very simple way without having to do any major changes. We're just simply going to give you a probiotic. should be like drinking an extra yogurt drink or something along with your uh, carbidopa levodopa or ha swallowing one more pill of probiotic uh, bacteria that uh, don't have the um, tyrosine decarboxylase enzyme would be a dramatic change in which how we manage carbidopa levodopa induced uh, side effects or giving higher and higher doses of medicine. So I think it's a very promising, very exciting area. Um, personally, I think it's a good news for a lot of patients who are needing more of the carbidopa and we have to escalate their doses uh, frequently. Uh, such patients may benefit from this uh, new discovery. So that's kind of the summary. Um, does that make sense to you, uh, Warren? Yeah, you think this is related to the uh, small group of people that have to take their their medication without food? Because I know that a lot of people think they they have to have all their protein at night, right. and you you pretty you say often that that's maybe a small group group of people that the average person you don't want to limit yourself and to see if you really are one of those people. You think uh, that think this could be those people? Um. The study didn't really look into that. Uh, I kind of doubt whether that's the case because uh, the protein interference 
um, is related to the fact that there's a protein load, meaning the protein actually interferes with the absorption. But I think your point, which is maybe the protein load is, is actually a result of um, the bacteria, meaning right. the bacteria sort of chew up the, the protein load, and that's really what, what's doing it. It could be a reason, but uh, I kind of think it should be the other way around. If you're taking a lot of bacteria and the, I mean, sorry, a lot of protein and the bacteria actually can chew up the protein, then that should spare the levodopa uh, and the levodopa should be able to go in. Uh, but again, I don't think they've looked at it very carefully. Right. Um, this may be an area where we will, we will need to further investigate. Right. One related topic, which I think um, we should talk about, we have, we have mentioned it in other podcasts, but I think it's relevant here, is that uh, there are two things. Uh, one is that uh, this study and other studies that are related to it have shown that people who are taking proton pump inhibitors, um, these are people who have acid reflux or peptic ulcer disease, heartburn, uh, these type of things, and you're taking heartburn medicines. And there are many proton pump inhibitors uh, available, many common ones. Some of them are even over the counter. And if you're taking some of these things um, for a long time, this study and other studies have shown that that could be a problem with um, Parkinson medication absorption. Uh, so proton pump inhibitors is one uh, thing we need to worry about. Another thing, um, this study and other studies have also um, brought attention is um, this other bug, which is called Helicobacter pylori. Uh, now, Helicobacter pylori is a bug that is present uh, in everybody who has peptic ulcer disease or heartburn or reflux. And it's been implicated as the number one cause for uh, ulceration of the stomach and uh, causation of stomach cancer. So nowadays, uh, we can quickly screen people for helicobacter. There are simple blood tests, and there's also a breath test that can be done. And literally within um, a few hours, we will know whether you do have helicobacter in your gut. And it's very easily treatable with uh, a single dose of antibiotic, we can pretty much uh, eradicate helicobacter pylori. But it's important to remember this. So people who are struggling with their carbidopa levodopa, meaning they're not getting the benefit that is expected, uh, despite you taking the medicine exactly like the way the doctor has told you to. Now, there's no shortcut to that. Uh, we have talked about this numerous times, that in my opinion, uh, you have to take medicine exactly like what the doctor told you to do. But let's say you're doing that and you're taking everything correctly and you're still not getting the benefit that you're, you're expected to get, then we do need to think about all these three things. Um, and the three things are one, whether you have helicobacter pylori infection. Uh, number two, if you're on proton pump inhibitors, whether they are interfering with the Parkinson's medication absorption. And then the third is whether you have these newly discovered uh, bacteria that produce tyrosine decarboxylase which actually um, works on the uh, levodopa and converts it to dopamine. All three things may uh, be influencing whether you meet your, your, your gut absorption of levodopa is adequate or appropriate. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Because when, when these drugs first came on the market, they were limited to 30 days, 
because nobody knew what would happen with no acid in the stomach. Mm-hmm. But people get stomach cancer or because the, the acid is uh, protective mm-hmm. in the stomach and the, the proton pump inhibitors take away all the acid. A lot, right. lot different than the, uh, the original Tagamet or Zantac medications. Right. So, so this is something, like you said, nobody knows what the, the effect of shutting off the acid does in people with Parkinson's. Right. And it seems like everything's going through the stomach lately. The stomach's under a lot of scrutiny. And uh, these drugs are already on the market over the counter. So it's really up to everybody to talk to their doctor about it and find out if they should slow down on that or try some, some other type of antacid because uh, they're full prescription doses over the counter. And it does bring your acid level down to zero. Right. Great. Excellent. Well, I think um, that kind of summarizes that particular story. Um, and uh, I think um, unless you have other thoughts on that particular story, uh, I don't have anything more to add on that. No, I think we hit that. Could we go into that other one and just try it out? See the, right. the, other, the other story, the other article. Yeah. So the other interesting story is actually a slight rehash of what's been done in the past, but it's also quite interesting in that um, in this particular study, they looked at um, caffeine intake and exercise to see um, what kinds of things may happen in people who um, have Parkinson's disease. So this is also a very interesting long-term study, um, very smart way of doing the the study. They they collected data from a lot of people, um, and um, this particular uh, study, they they actually examined uh, whether coffee or caffeinated tea, moderate alcohol consumption, and physical activity were protective at least against one outcome. And they also checked whether smoking and heavy alcohol consumption was um, associated with increased risk. Um, And uh, the way they did this, uh, they looked at what's called hazard ratio. Hazard ratio is is a statistical way in which they will determine how much risk is there. And what they found is that um, caffeine, coffee, uh, was protective against time um, in, in stage three patients, which means the patient had already had fairly advanced Parkinson's disease. And they said, mm, okay, there is a, uh, some benefit that caffeine will protect against time. So the time it takes for you to get to the Hornemir stage three, meaning how quickly you advance to stage three, caffeine seemed to have some protective effect. It also has seemed to have protective effect against uh, cognitive decline, um, how much memory loss you have. Uh, it's, caffeine seemed to have a beneficial effect against it. And also it seemed to reduce uh, mortality, meaning the chance that you would die became less, uh, with mortal- mortality became less. And um, relative to uh, moderate drinkers, those who never drank liquor, and those who drink more heavily, there was increased risk for horn and yard stage three. So um, if you never drank uh, alcohol at all, uh, versus those who drink um, moderate or heavily, 
um, the, the risk for them to go into stage three horn and yarn or stage three Parkinson's disease was higher. Um, and that was uh, not exactly expected, but um, because, you know, generally there's this conversation, can I dr- have a, a drink once a week or whatever? Uh, it turns out that if you are a complete teetotaler, you do have uh, some protection against disease progression. Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise in the study. Um, and then the last thing that they, they, they found was that if you have been historically um, very athletic, you played competitive sports, so you were part of uh, football or soccer or whatever, uh, uh, swimming team, swim team, etc., then it seems like that protected against cognitive decline. So you had previously been athletic and uh, then you developed Parkinson's disease. Uh, you seem to have protection against uh, memory loss and that was significant. And it also seemed that if you're athletic, it protected you against going to stage three horn and yar. And uh, that again was a little bit of a, a surprise because we normally don't associate athleticism. Um, we think that exercise should be done after you get Parkinson's disease, or we say, okay, once you get um, once you get Parkinson's, you become physically active. But this actually shows that if you are athletic before you came down with Parkinson's disease and you are competitively involved in sports, you actually got the protection. Uh, the study did not measure whether after you got in, uh, got your Parkinson's, if you started doing athletic activity, does it do anything or not? And then the last uh, most intriguing um, uh, finding is regarding smoking. As many of you know, um, smoking was thought to be protective against Parkinson's disease. But this study, which again had a lot of patients, a cohort of 360 patients who were followed for a very long time, it actually showed that um, cigarette smoking was associated with faster cognitive decline, that cognitive decline was more if you were currently smoking. And now that's a little bit of a shocker because, again, we were thinking that cigarette smoking will actually be beneficial, but it did. So that's a very uh, interesting and uh, and. Uh, uh, kind of intriguing uh, finding. Now, uh, all these studies were published in um, in uh, Movement Disorders. It's a, a major journal in the field of Parkinson's disease, a very good journal. And um, there was a editorial, and the editorial is from uh, two of the people who have done a lot of epidemiological work, uh, Alberto Asharo and Michael Swartchild. Uh, they wrote a nice editorial, so what does this all uh, mean? How does this all, how do we interpret this and how does, how does we, how do we think about this? And one of the, one of the summaries that they make, and I agree with, is that even though we always think that caffeine and physical activity um, are sort of uh, good things, um, this is probably the best evidence we have that, caffeine may be neuroprotective um, and, uh, and that uh, exercise may also be somewhat beneficial. So those two take-home messages uh, that 
if you consumed caffeine and you lived longer and manifested slower disease progression and marks uh, cognitive decline, that's actually uh, sort of a good thing. And then the fact that you have been athletic in your younger life before you came down with, uh, with, with Parkinson's is also a major important finding. The other important finding that, again, uh, is uh, further, uh, further uh, verified by this uh, particular editorial by Asheril and Swatchow is that um, the bad news with smoking. So, um, and they report this not only from this study, but also there has been a reason, another study, which they use the transdermal nicotine, the nicotine patch people use for smoking cessation. They put that on on Parkinson patients to see whether the nicotine patch will actually give them any um, slowing of their disease. And it did not. It had no beneficial effect whatsoever. So uh, literally the smoking may be a smoking gun, meaning it really didn't stand the scrutiny of time. That smoking is not beneficial. In fact, it has more issues with it. Um, so that's sort of the message. And I think the, the overall theme from this study and from everything that we have learned in the recent years regarding uh, these four things, uh, smoking, uh, exercise, alcohol consumption, and, and uh, coffee drinking. Of these four things, uh, the two winners are caffeine and exercise. And clearly the big loser is smoking. Um, and sort of a important warning that if you're still drinking, um, especially you are drinking heavily, then probably not a good news for you because you're likely to accelerate into stage three uh, quicker. Um, and that you probably don't want to do that. So uh, that's sort of the, the message. Um, I don't know if you got anything more on this, uh, Warren. Yeah, I have a couple of things. Uh, on that coffee, you think that uh, it could be an unknown ingredient that's, that's helping people out, like not, not the part that stimulates you? It could be another sort yeah. of like the marijuana that has – it's not the high that helps you because it right. seems like coffee over the years, it has certain things in there that – that help people out and it's not the stimulation. Right. So uh, caffeine, which is the major ingredient of um, coffee, it works through a very specific receptor in the brain. And there's been a lot of interest in this particular receptor because this receptor is present in the brain in the area where Parkinson's is affected, which is called the uh, striatum. So this is called the adenosine receptors. So it works through adenosine. Um, and um, there have been other drugs that have been generated uh, that looks like the caffeine, and they've tried that. One of the famous ones is called the Kaiva compound, and it's actually available in Japan. It's marketed in Japan. It did have some beneficial effect in um, dyskinesia, in Parkinson's disease, and that's been around for... Um, at least five years now, has been available. I haven't seen any reports from Japan on its efficacy once it came into the market, but the data that got, got the drug approved in Japan was really impressive. 
And we were thinking that it'll come to America as well, but the FDA was not impressed by that data, so they didn't actually approve it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so there may be other ways in which caffeine is acting. Um, It may not be just the caffeine, but there may be other things that also work on the adenosine receptors. Right. And just one more thing, just to follow up on what you were talking about with uh, past exercise and past physical fitness is helpful. Mm -hmm. I uh, I noticed over the years, I don't know if it's if it's true for everybody, but it seems like Parkinson's draws a line and everything drops maybe 30%. So things that you were really good at, you're only down maybe 20% or 10%. Things that you weren't that good at, you may be down 60%. Mm. And it seems, seems like from what I've been reading and different things, it could make sense that things... You you have your uh, in your brain you have the past memories right. of being physically fit or or exercise or or uh, walking a straight line or balance things like that and uh, seems like anything you were really good at you stay at least average with and things you were terrible at get much worse have you seen that in your practice right I think that's that's a very good observation so. Um... I think what Warren is uh, referring to is what we call executive memory or executive function. Um, and playing competitive sports, for example, requires that. So if you think about it, if you're a very good golfer or a very good tennis player or a very good um, whatever player, uh, swimmer, then you learn those moves, how to hit the ball or how to swing your golf, uh, 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 golf uh, equipment, how you do that, you actually practiced it, rehearsed it, and you actually have a very, very sharp, um, nicely coordinated move that helps you get the best result. And this requires a lot of training, what we call motor training. And sometimes it gets so good that you can do it without even thinking about it. So for example, uh, one of the famous basketball players, Michael Jordan or LeBron James in the new era, if you ask them to uh, shoot from one end of the court and try to hit the ball in the, in the basket, they could probably do it um, with, with the eyes tied up because they're so good at doing this and they've done it so many times that even with the blindfold, they'll still do it. And the reason is that practice and rehearsal gives you what we call motor programming that you can execute thoughtlessly without even having to pay attention to stuff. So it's not surprising that people who are athletic uh, are do better overall in uh, disease progression. But what was really surprising is previous athletes also had cognitive benefits. In other words, their cognitive decline was also stymied because they were good athletes, which means that athleticism not only makes you physically fit, but it also makes you mentally fit. Your mental sharpness is also preserved. So the bottom line message is that in families who have Parkinson's disease, you should encourage people to become athletic and uh, they should get involved in some form of competitive sports. Now, once you come back with Parkinson's, is it important to get into athletic sports? That's just not clear, not clear at from the study. But one can imagine that at least if you get into a routine where you practice the same thing again and again, 
like for example, if you're tennis shot or ping pong shot or snooker ball or uh, uh, whatever, I mean, whatever sport that you, you do, archery, whatever, uh, then you, you probably do better because you're rehearsing the thing again and again and again, and you're going to put that motor programming back into your brain, which should help you not only physically, but also help you mentally uh, become sharper. So I think your point is uh, very well taken. I think uh, that 30% decrement, 60% decrement really relates to the notion that you already have pre-programmed motor programming in your brain if you had already practiced and rehearsed it before. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's something I noticed. And it's, uh, you know, hopefully you did things before you got Parkinson's, but it's hard to, hard to do that. So you, that's why you're, what you're saying is it's good for everybody to get into a routine or some good athleticism right. because the worst case is you won't need it, but you'll still feel better and right. have more enjoyment. Right. And, and the fact that it actually helps beyond the physical, it helps your mind, it helps right. your memory. I think that's the biggest point is that even if you don't think you're going to physically get benefit from it, I think it gives you the mental benefit, which, right. is, which is a really important thing. No? So you got nothing to lose. Exactly. That's great. Well, thanks for a good podcast, Dr. Sue. Okay. Thank you. And uh, hope to see you all uh, next time. Sure. Thanks. Bye.